0: Hello, and welcome to another episode of the Boom Goddess Podcast Project with your hosts, myself, Dr. Andrea Goldmarks, Jennifer Davis Page, and Bibi Peters. This podcast aims to ignite inspiration in primetime women by creating a super learning community, a safe space for all women to contribute their voices and visions. For more information on this episode, and to learn more, visit us at boomgoddessradio.com.
1: Okay, so here we are, the day after Independence Day, and we're talking about our uh, relationships, obligations, enjoyment of, and general caretaking of our elders. And here we are, the Boon Goddesses, with BB Peters, Jennifer Davis-Page, and myself, Dr. Andrea. And uh, how are we doing,
2: BB? How are we doing? How are you forth? Uh, any exciting activities? Any fireworks? Any uh, burgers or hot dogs? Well, interestingly enough,
3: um, my mother decided that she, at 92 years old, didn't want any, any picnic food. She wanted meatballs and spaghetti. So that's what I fixed. I fixed meatballs, Italian sausage, marinara sauce, she, was Italian uh, garlic bread, and she was happy as a clam. So anything that makes her happy is fine with me. That was
1: so adorable. Mm-hmm. And I'll tell you, we did do the burgers, and I did do my fiesta potato salad is fireworks in its own right, and make it a little bit spicy. And um, and uh, we had some burgers, some turkey, and some uh, grass-fed. But the cutest part was that we had a lot of watermelon. And even though my tiny little 96-year-old dad said that he was so full he couldn't go on, he wound up eating half the, the watermelon. He just kept working his <laughs> way like a surgeon. And even though it was a pretty seedless watermelon, still ha- had those little seeds.
2: Fun. Well, someone has now just joined us.
1: Who is this? Hi, this is Sabrina
4: Regas in Tucson, Arizona.
2: <laughs> <laughs>
1: We're happy to have you with us, Sabrina. This is Andrea and and Bebe. and Jennifer. <laughs> Thanks for calling. Hello. How are you? Oh,
5: and Durrell has joined us. Hello, Durrell. How are you doing? Well, I'm doing fine, ladies, doing fine. Enjoying listening to the stories about watermelon in the Fourth of July and how older people enjoy doing whatever they want to, even if they're full.
1: Right. It's the privilege of <laughs> elderhood. So some stories. How about you, Sabrina? How did you spend your fourth?
4: Well, um, we spent it with my mother, and my son-in-law, my daughter, and his gran- his grandfather, um, and we had a nice uh, barbecue, and uh, we went to the fireworks, and we had our hot dogs and hamburgers. It was a lot of fun and enjoyed it
1: immensely. Because we go to sleep here, this is Andrea, at 9 o'clock, we miss the fireworks. We do get to hear the booming sound, But, you know, we get up at 4 in the morning here in the desert, so uh, we've missed out on the fireworks. But welcome, everybody. And our, our aim today is certainly to illustrate the great variety of circumstances and personalities that get involved when we talk about our taking care of our aging parents and there's three of us i think who are actively taking care and two who have taken care in the
2: past well actually there are four of you right so darrell and sabrina you and jen are actually taking care of You're your right. parents and then i did uh, up until about eight years ago when both of them passed away so we have either experienced that or we are right in the middle of it right now.
5: Well Darrell is in the Well actually.
2: Uh, I was the about same. To say,
5: actually right. I'm in the same boat with Phoebe. I am uh, I'm I am an orphan. <laughs> I no longer have a living parent and I did take care of my father before he
1: passed. Yes, and that whole thing about being an orphan is a whole other topic that we want to talk about. Um, eventually we wind up having so many topics branching off our tree of main topic. Um, but today we're talking about the actual experience, the conflicts and the emotionality of taking care of an aging parent. What are you remembering, Durell? <laughs> You know, now
5: that I'm on the other side of it, what I remember most is how delightful my father was as he got older. That there was a sense of of intention, of having lived an intentional life that I just marveled at. And I remember so much wanting to make sure I had the level of peace when I reached 93. As my father did. And he taught me some things. So I remember his joy, the joy in his spirit. Whenever I would go see him, and I would be apologetic because we went through a cycle of living with me and then not being able to live with me and then ultimately being in a place that could care for him better than I was. And I was very, I felt guilty about that. And I remember going. To spend time with him and making, a, 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 you know, saying I'm sorry I couldn't be here yesterday, and he would tell me with great joy that, oh, you know, that I was, I was his greatest blessing, and that, you know, that the any time I would come was a day of sunshine. I mean, he was unbelievable. He would make me feel so good about coming to see him that it was always a source of joy for me, even though I was always bothered by the fact that I could no longer care for him in my home. So it was quite a dichotomy of, it, of emotions that uh, I remember mostly. Uh, but always some joy and feeling very blessed that I was chosen to be the one to be with him as he, you know, transitioned. My sisters lived in other places and they did not want the assignment, so I got the assignment. Hmm. We didn't share like Jennifer and Sabrina. I got the full
4: assignment.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. I currently have most of the full assignment with my this is Andrea with my ninety six year old dad. My sister lives in New York, so she can only really visit a couple of times a year. But many families divide up the financial care as you know, versus the actual hands on care. How is it for you, Jen? Well, my sister and I, you know,
3: when mother is with me, um, I I take on the the financial responsibility of her. When she's with my sister, she takes care of the financial responsibility of her. So I don't send money back and forth. But my mother has her own money. So um, that makes it, you know, that makes it easy for us. I mean, she is not a wealthy woman, but she has her her monthly income and she's got her, her medical all taken care of. So it's... We're really blessed that, that we're able to do it that way.
2: And Bill says, do you and your sister take turns doing this? How often do you switch it up?
3: Every every six months. My mother said she feels like a child from a divorced parent where she goes back and <laughs> forth, back and forth. So, um, so my mother is with me from, from generally from uh, May to November, and then she's with my sister the rest of the year.
2: Sabrina, and it sounds like you kind of have the same thing with your mom. Can you Mm -hmm. tell us a little bit about the situation that you have and how that came to be family-wise? Well, it's the same thing. I'm in the same type of situation as uh, Jennifer.
4: Um, uh, Basically, my sister and I, my sister lives in California, and uh, she's my older sister and myself, and uh, we share also uh, depends sometimes every six months. Sometimes uh, she's longer with me here or shorter in California. I think she likes it here because there's a lot of action going on at my house. I have a um, multi-generational family situation. I have my daughter and her husband living in our guest house and then I have another daughter who's currently um, in college and, uh, and another daughter who's an entrepreneur coming back and forth from Costa Rica, so there's a lot of action here, and she has her little dog here um, that she keeps her busy, so um, I, I, as I said, she's, I think, happier, and also this is the home of my father. Uh, he was a native Kusanian who passed away 16 years ago, so, um, and my mother is a European. Um, she was born and raised in Strasbourg, France, so um, I think she feels comfortable being in Tucson because it's the the home of my father, and uh, she has a lot of, uh, you know, good good sense of feeling of home here in Tucson.
2: Yes, and are there just the two of you, you and your sister, just the two?
4: Yes, uh uh-huh, that's correct.
2: Okay, so uh, I suppose that that would be a little easier than to come to an agreement or to set up a plan because uh, if there are more children, let's say three, four, or five, then there's mm-hmm. a variety of ways that you know different people have of, of uh, handling it. Was it mm-hmm. easy for you and your sister to uh, create this plan? Well, um, just, we just
4: kind of fell into it because my father always said, uh, you know, something should happen to me first, you know, take care of your mom. And basically, that's the agreement. Okay, of course, we're going to take care of my mother um, as long as we're able to at this point in our life. Um, when my father passed away, my mother did live alone for a short period of time. I was living overseas uh, with my husband, who's an engineer, and I came home every summer you know, with my daughters and uh stayed with my parents. But when he passed away unexpectedly, it was kind of a shocker. I mean it was a shocker, I say better than kind of, it was a shocker, uh, for my mother and for my sister and uh, and myself. And um when she lived alone, she lived alone I think maybe about two years. And she's my mother's you know, was always a pretty much uh she worked as a bookkeeper. And she had friends at work, um, work friends, colleagues, and, um, she, I always thought she was pretty able to take care of herself. She was strong. She always, I always felt she was in charge. She was always in charge of the finances of my father, uh, so it seems. And when my father passed on, suddenly I found myself, um, challenged with taking care of my mother's personal affairs, you know, with, uh, dealing with uh, the death of my father and the repercussions. And, you know, he was a retired military and then he had a second career for the city of Tucson and having to deal with all the paperwork. And where I found that she had difficulty with in communicating with all these different types of organizations, and where I found really interesting. You know, I always thought my father, my mother was basically – take charge person, where I, as a daughter, found out it was more my father making the decision. So that was an eye-opening experience for my sister and myself. Um, um, As she became more dependent, um, we've sort of, I think my sister and I are very guilty, Um, I think we enabled my mother. We've always been her source of entertainment, so... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> as, as my daughter say, I think you have been able to mother because she's always dependent on my sister and I to entertain her. She's traveled with us abroad. Um, we've taken her on all vacations with us, so she's
1: been very lucky. And now, basically,
4: she became—you know—as you know, the a, a process of aging uh, came by came on with her, um, she became. Um, She's had some medical uh, problems later on in her late 70s, early 80s, where she had a heart attack. And from then, we decided that uh, we are going to have to uh, take care and uh, stay with us in our homes. Um, We just felt it was more of a comfortable situation for my sister and myself to take care of my mother. So I moved back to Tucson with my daughter and um, committed myself to taking care of my mom.
1: Sabrina, you bring up so many interesting um, elements in your story, uh, and I mm-hmm. think in many stories, there's always the play of guilt. There's always the sense of responsibility as to what we think we should be doing. There's mm-hmm. always the decline of the cognitive capacity of our parents over time. Like I can just say, in my dad's case, He was always the one who just was such a good manager of all of his affairs, or so I thought, and Mm -hmm. I've been the one that's taken over, you know, kind of like that executrix function because my father's Mm -hmm. got um, a form of dementia. Did anybody else Mm -hmm. here deal with any dementia with the parents? Did you, Darrell? Oh, yes. My father
5: um, had dementia, and um, like you, I ended up having to take care of his finances, but Truth be told, I actually lived with my father when I divorced, and my children were one and two years old, and I I moved back to Chicago. <laughs> Excuse me. So my father and I had a very long-standing relationship. We had a kinship, and part of my responsibilities, where he is concerned, and taking care of his finances started. I would say about 15 years before he passed, and about seven years before he started living with me, and I was involved with, you know, the end stages of his life, and that's primarily because of his dementia. He was not paying bills, wasn't filing his income tax, and when I realized that, I didn't want him to go to jail. I said, you at least have to file, and from that process, I then started taking over his finances. It was not my plan to do that, but once I realized that he wasn't doing it, it was clear to me that he was in a new season of his life. And my father always depended upon me. I heard someone else say that. Uh, they, 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 you were instrumental in kind of helping the life be happy for them. Well, I was the daughter who made life work for my father, almost like a husband. And uh, mm-hmm. so my father was very dependent upon me. And even though my sisters didn't want to assume any responsibility for caring for him, it was really almost a natural Process And I, by default, got my father. The dynamic was that I got my father less than a year after my husband, my second husband, my late husband died. So it was a, a, a difficult time, So, but it was an assignment that I, I did receive, um, even though it was hard for me at the time. So, yes, I watched that process. That dementia, as it sparks and as it grows, it is very hard to deal with. And what I learned from it is that, you know, it might start with just the financial obligations kind of going to the side. But then if something happens where they have some type of physical uh, issue, mm-hmm. it always takes a little more of their mind every time they have another physical occurrence. And you get a little less and less, and it reveals itself, You know, even more so, it plays out even more so in their lives. So, I watched my father get. You know, he was he didn't have Alzheimer's, but he was he became a different person every time he had some type of physical ailment that uh, landed him in the hospital. So, you know, I don't want to I don't I don't welcome that for those of you that are still caring for people. That's just a heads up that it tends to to start being a little more of
1: a problem.
5: As, as they continue to to suffer you know, with other physical ailments. So
1: on, a, on a lighter note, relative to the dementia, I remember one day that my father fell when we were actually at an airport in New York. You know, they ch- they chase you away from the um, from the airport gate, not the gate, but you know, just to drop people off. And so he had to go to the men's room, and that was very inconvenient because he couldn't walk a long distance and as we were coming back, he was hurrying and he tripped a little bit and we wound up getting the car and we got into the car and I turned around, we got him in, I said, how are you doing? That was quite a fall. And he said, what, what fall? <laughs> he, you know, the one good thing about men uh-huh. uh-huh. that he would he forget. He remember. <laughs> <in his laughs> yeah. And sometimes, you know, it's a safety issue. You know, he got hurt once and he didn't even let us know because he forgot that he was hurt until uh, his wound was quite infected. So there is um, a downside, but there's also sort of a fun side a little bit to the memory as long as there are enough people taking care. Yeah. Right, right. I mean, I in the
4: last six months, I mean, I I'm – constantly worried about um, my mother leaving her, um, sometimes alone for a few hours in, the ho- in my house, and uh, worried that she might fall or something might occur where she is forgetful about where she's at, disoriented a bit. I've noticed this more uh, just recently. I just brought her back from California on the drive out and uh, these last couple of days being back here. Um, she is disorganized in where she's at again, which takes time, and that's understandable. But, um, right now I'm in the process of emailing a kitchen, so it's really difficult to show her where the water is going to be, where is this going to be. (laughs) But I, I, you know, I, it's, it's amazing how much, um, you learn when you're taking care of a parent and how the roles change, um. When you're growing up, mom and dad are always there. You know, you never worry about anything except your own life. And then when it turns, like uh, the situation with my mother, you don't know how far to go with her finances. In the beginning, when I had to take over, I, I she was always in charge. She was a bookkeeper, and she was very defiant sometimes. She knew how to do things. She was defiant about taking her own medicine. She will take it. You know, but it was getting to a point to remind her, or we couldn't figure out if she took it or not. So then I've had to, I had to—I didn't know how far to go with her because she's my mother. You know, and it's—it's—you know, you're you're afraid to say something, and uh, you know you almost get—you know, I know what I'm doing, and so you think you know they—they they know what they're doing, but sometimes um, it doesn't always happen that way now. So you do have to
1: take a step and take charge. Serena, you bring up, you know, hearing the parental voice and that's mm-hmm. something that's so embedded in us. Like when our parents mm-hmm. said one thing or another, we really took it as truth. And yet, um, in their declining um capacities the pride, um, stays there and um also the voice that they have, they're still somewhere <laughs> Um, dynamic, and we sometimes have to really override that voice because right, they
5: right, they
1: do not know. The other
5: thing that you have to do is to speak up for that voice. One of the things that um, I had to experience was making sure that people didn't take advantage of my father, right. uh, and that was a big concern for me. I wanted who he was inside. I wanted his who Lehman was to always be there and for people not to treat him like he was less than just because he was, he had some physical issues and some slowly graduating, you know, mental malfunctions. So it was important to me to be his advocate. And that that's a role, you know, initially you might be assuming some custodial roles, but as things transition and you have to... Depend on outside sources for support, it becomes more and more critical uh, that you become that advocate for them so that the role does shift <laughs> and definitely yeah, among is, the
1: yeah
4: definitely among the medical community when I oh uh, go to yeah. the doctor's appointments, I've learned so much about being an advocate for my mother um, you know when the nurses or the doctors they 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 talk to her in a tone I mean. Uh, they're so, they run the information so by so quickly that sometimes my mother is sitting there and you think she's, you know, listening and she's trying, but she doesn't bother to say anything because she's basically she didn't understand what they said because they were talking so fast and I would look at her and say, mom, did you understand what they said? She goes, well, not really. And I said, well, you know what? I didn't either. So, you know what, let's talk you know, can you slow down your tone and please, can you, I I didn't get what you just said, excuse me, but my mother didn't understand and I didn't understand. So could you please repeat what you just said? And they assume that you know everything because my mother really didn't have any medical problems until she was in her late, late 70s, I think she was about 80. And so they assume that we know everything. And then I had to tell them, you know, um, we haven't uh, been through this very often. My mother has not been in the hospital. Uh, I don't know the procedure. I'm sorry, but I'm fairly educated, and you need to really clarify a few things for me. But that's where you really have to be an advocate for your mother, when they assume you understood everything and move on, and it isn't that way.
1: So, it's a great illustration. Um- and you have to be assertive with them, and you have to be assertive with others for them. For them. Because I, mm-hmm. I found when I was, you know,
3: my mother's got two sets of doctors that talk to each other, so she's got one in Tennessee and, and, of course, one here, and I found that I was fortunate enough to have a young female doctor. And some doctors tended to talk to me, my mother's in the room, they're talking to me, right. and look. Me And not looking at her and talking about her, so I found mm-hmm. that this young female doctor who we now have looks at her and speaks to her directly as if i 'm not even in the room which is which is really wonderful respectful. because they now, it, yeah. it's respectful yeah so uh, right. it's very important um. Uh, we're going to do a show some some weeks down the road about whether we should fire your doctor. And I think these are important uh, notes to have because they've got to have respect. They absolutely must have respect for for their patient. Mm-hmm. My mother does not have dementia. She is on she's on a little memory pill that we make sure she takes every day. But her memory seems to be very sound. Um, mm-hmm. she had pneumonia a few weeks ago which weakened her body. Right now she right now she is getting very strong and she decided that she was going to get up and take care of it and engage in occupational therapy. So one day I came home and she had peeled a potato. Of course she had to rest in between that time, which was great. But she told me I peeled the potato. It and it took her all day to do what she used to do in an hour but she got up and she wanted to do it which really made my heart sing because i was getting to the point where i was saying i wonder is she ever going to be able to do this again so uh-huh. um and she's you know she's always been a big people that know her you all know that she's always been a big gumbo maker so the other day and gumbo is a <laughs> takes a little time you know so she said, "I want some gumbo." And I said to myself, "Oh my, okay." So what I did was I cut up everything—all of the, all of the, uh, as they say in New Orleans, the the Trinity—you know, the onions and, and green peppers and and, and, and garlic—and I cut up everything. But what I had her do was stir the pot, which is all she really wanted to do, and she wanted to tell me what to put in at what time. So. I was exhausted, but she stirred, but now it's her gumbo. And I wanted her to have that sense of that was her pot of, pot of gumbo. So it's different. I mean, it's different. I know you all, we remember our mothers when they were young. And now mm-hmm. she, six months ago, she's different than she was six months ago. So, And I don't know what but, the next, next
5: months are going to look like, but I'm going to have to be prepared for it.
6: Um, right. I don't know that
5: you ever can prepare for it. I, I just, right. you know, I think it, it's harder than you think, and I'm not trying to scare you when I say that. And the reason I say that is because we talked about some decision making that has to be made with medical community when things change. And then there's the emotional that goes alongside of that of watching this transition and it and and how weighted it is because sometimes. Uh, the parents could be incontinent. My father was incontinent of foul and urine. My father had, he, he started shuffling. He couldn't walk. He first came to Tucson, he could walk miles. So I'm watching this transition of, yeah. of this man that I love and that had cared for me, and now I'm in another position. And, yes, he was incontinent, and, yes, I had to change his diapers, you know. And that was demeaning initially. But I did everything that I could to make sure that it wasn't demeaning for him that when I did it, it it became, I, I did it as honoring as I could. I'll never forget the first time, I know we're on the radio, but the first time that happened, he said, oh, now I'm the baby, you know. And I said, but Daddy, you know, I was always your baby. You know, I tried to do it, you know, and, and you know, and we're both grown and this has to be done and I have to help you and I'm here for you. You know, and we'd laugh about it. I'd make jokes out of things. So everything became lighthearted. And, you know, and he would just tell me how blessed he was to have me. I don't know. I don't believe that started when those occurrences started. I think that relationship started so long ago that when the occurrences came, it was easy for the things to happen in a normal way. And it's not like I know so much about this but i do remember a lot about it and the key for me was loving my father as much as i did and 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 the heart relationship that we had made the physical stuff so much easier as it got worse and it does get worse
1: you know we're we're talking here all of us as people who have assumed the responsibility for a parent but we also wanted to and of course we can't discuss it necessarily in this conversation because everybody in this conversation has assumed responsibility in one way or another. Um, Bebe had a parent who ultimately the family decided that it was best for your mother to be in a wonderful, you said, resort-like community.
2: Right. Uh, we wanted her to have the luxury, the feeling of living in luxury, and there was some money available. Uh, from the sale of their house which had already been paid for so when we got the cash for it we wanted to treat her to that and we were so my husband Al and I were so excited about getting her to that place and within oh I would say 30 days or 45 days she began to go downhill and even though she had this beautiful apartment and a car um first we had to take the car away and then within a very short period of time she could not function on her own i i would uh we would fly into phoenix from uh seattle and we find hard-boiled eggs in the bathroom she was storing yes. her eggs in the bathroom as opposed to in the fridge um, and so when we were noticing those things, we said, this is not going to work. This luxury apartment isn't going to be very helpful and and sustain her. So we have to take more action. It, it's just amazing how quickly sometimes things change. How old was your mother at that time? She was about 79. Oh, so she was young. She was. Yeah, yeah she was I think young. that
1: there's some kind of a genetic code I know that when we sold my father's apartment we we recognized that once he wasn't able to communicate about a wound that he incurred, that it was now time to move him and so at that point we made the decision to move him from New York City to Tucson to a lovely assisted living arrangement which was about which is about twenty minutes from my home. My home here couldn't really accommodate him full-time and so I I really rest a whole lot easier knowing that there are people around the clock and even though he's still independent he's not um, I mean he has small level one they call it level one assistance where people stand outside his door when he dresses just in case he trips they make sure that he's his hygiene is taken care of he doesn't cook and they have um, a dining room open from seven in the morning till seven at, light, at night. But I go there so many times a week that they already know, talk about being an advocate. They don't mess with, they don't neglect anything. They've learned now, it's two years, they've learned to be very attentive to um, my dad and what I ask because of that advocacy and because of that off-site but on-site supervision. But I wonder for the, for the
3: people in that same facility that don't have a daughter or a son that is their advocate. Are are they looking out for them the way they're looking out for your dad?
1: I think they are. I think it happens to be a good place. But I think that they are um, a little bit more attentive mm-hmm. because they know that you never know when Dr. Andrea is going to come around and find write something. Them up. And <laughs> write them up. But I must say, yesterday I had such a good reception when I made the arrangement to have him ready for me to be picked, to pick him up for our dinner. And um, both the receptionist and the caregiver uh, was uh, were so amazingly helpful yesterday, and so on the spot that I've decided that I'm going to write a letter to the woman who's in charge of the caregivers, I just to it. let her know that something wonderful did happen. That's very nice.
2: That's As well, good, that's
1: you. very nice.
4: Very nice, and
1: yeah, so yeah, with my mother, it's,
4: it's funny. You know, my mother lived through a hard time in World War II, so. Um, it's it's always hard for her to express her feelings. The communication with my mother and I you know, growing up was not as easy because trying to understand where my mother is coming from. And you know, the older I get, the wiser I think I mean, Shani, it was tough, and it's hard to express your feelings. And to this day, she doesn't very express her feelings clearly to me what she wants or oh. what she'd like to do. You know what I'm saying? It's basically and like, when it comes to going to a restaurant, she'll look at me and say, oh, I don't know. She has, She's very decisive. She doesn't She can't seem to make up her own mind about what she wants or what she wants to do. Or when she had her heart attack, we had a social worker come in and ask her, what are your plans?
1: I think all of us have been talking a little bit about this particular generation. And I think this may be the last thing we can really um, get to in, in today's segment. But this generation of World War II survivors, Jennifer's mom at 92, Right, and your mom, Sabrina, at ninety-three, my dad, she'll be be ninety-two in December. Yeah, Mm -hmm. these are world; these are era, World War II generation, the Great Generation, and they are not used to. um, They're they're not used to talking about their feelings or having Mm -hmm. their children um, be upset, Um, and and also they can't necessarily make make decisions anymore these parents on this call every single one bb's mom jen's mom sabrina's mom terrell's dad my dad we're all incredibly fortunate and they're incredibly fortunate to have us which you know kind of brings us to the next question and the next segment which is going to be how are we going to plan how are we going to know what is going to be with our care in the future
3: well the one thing that I wanted to have was a conversation with my mother about what she wanted you know how did she how did she want to move forward with the rest of her life and how did she want the when when her life ended how did she want my sister and my brother, and I proceed with the funeral arrangements. I wanted to give her, but she refuses absolutely mm. refuses to have a discussion about it so i have uh, to talk.
4: I don't feel so bad, Jennifer, mine too, and are when you're talking and saying that, I couldn't even sit down and i bear even asking that because I know what a reaction was. I don't know you know i mean uh, I don't want to talk
1: about this,
4: you know and um. That's the response I would definitely
1: get. Yes, and I'm um, chiming into and saying that my dad himself did not want to talk about it, does not want to, and because he's in assisted living, um, we had to make arrangements for the DNR, um, mm-hmm. which became a really hard thing to do. Um, it was basically his doctor who forced him into that conversation because – he wouldn't have it with me.
2: And the DNR okay. is
1: okay. Do, do not, not resuscitate. resuscitate. Okay. Right. right. Trying to explain to him at this advanced age the benefits of not resuscitating mm-hmm. after experiencing, let's say, a massive stroke where he might still be breathing, but essentially um, his brain would have um, died or quickly soon would die. So these kinds of conversations so need to be had As far as our generation goes, we need to have these conversations if we haven't already. I have a friend who had, her mother died of cancer about three years ago.
3: And the one thing that cancer gives you is time to put your affairs in order as opposed Mm to, you know, being killed in an automobile accident or, or any kind of sudden death. And she told me that the one wonderful gift her mother left her was a letter outlining everything she wanted. The songs that she wanted sung at her funeral. The flowers that she wanted. And she said, when I opened that letter after my mother's death, she said, I cried and laughed at the same time. Her mother wanted to be buried in a Victoria's Secret black lace. Um, oh, that's funny. Camisels? Uh, no. the you No, know, the... um Teddy? No, the the whole thing with the she wanted the
1: um, halter. I mean the garter belt. Yes,
3: the garter belt. <laughs> you know she wanted the silk wow. stock garter belt and, and and she said I went to Victoria's Secret and my mother was buried in the most beautiful beautiful black lace. So <laughs> my mother's not giving me that. But in terms of, of information to follow. So uh, my sister and my brother and I are pretty much on the same page when it comes and I don't think there'll be any any problems with us coming to an agreement about how to end and how to to close her life
5: out. I think that Well, really- I'm wondering is Andrea, you have a, you have a father? How does he respond because my father was very specific. He, he My father it. would
1: not address it. Um, he wouldn't address he- it. Mm-hmm. Ah no, nope. okay. he's more like Sabrina's mom and um, mm-hmm. Ben's mom. There's no bringing it up with him. He basically says, it's up to you two girls, meaning my sister and I, to do... <laughs> yeah, what this
4: is what she would say to me my
1: mother, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> right, it's up to you two girls. So it's very, you know, it's very interesting for us as the next generation to... Um, bear um Bearing all this, all these experiences in mind, to really detail what we want if we do want that, I just can't imagine asking anybody to make that those decisions.
2: What a great experience to talk to Sabrina and to Darrell about their history of taking care of their parents. You know uh, that conventionally 59 to 75 percent of parent caregivers are women. And a Princeton uh, researcher found that daughters step in twice as often as sons do. Yeah. And it's so interesting. And of course,
0: here at the table, we have Jen and I, who are active duty caregivers as women, sharing some of that responsibility with sisters, each of us. And later on, we have Ron, a friend from New York, who is involved with three brothers taking care of one 90-year-old mom. And it's so interesting to hear how he's approaching this and what the conflicts are
6: essentially my mom uh is almost 90 and she has fairly advanced dementia so and she probably had some strokes along the way so she really is not very verbally communicative so um the the issue is now that uh we she is living in her home with her youngest son and we are essentially trying to make her comfortable, keep her comfortable. She doesn't seem to be in any pain, but we are- we are now um basically all trying to participate um in um in- in the care of her to create a kind of a a caring circle around her, although this requires a change of behavior because my youngest brother has been living with her and has Um, really commandeered control just by virtue of being there and by virtue of the fact that he's not really gainfully employed, so he has taken on a role as her caregiver, almost her partner. So, um, what we're trying to do is to, you know, I, who are, you know, until he came back home, essentially was my mom's, you know, healthcare proxy, which I still am, as well as her. Now with him co power of attorney, and I'm trying to create uh, uh, or recreate a situation so that we're all involved in in mom's caregiving and in some capacity. Yeah, it's it's very difficult to talk about it, um, and. Um, one of the things that I've worked on is the, trying to get together the notion of having a family meeting where people can really talk about these things openly, but it's very difficult. A lot of people don't want to talk about it um um openly um even and I had a discussion with um an elder law attorney about um you know putting together these um Kinds of meetings for families where he would deal with legal things, and I would participate in kind of helping the social and interaction. And he himself said, "I would never do that with my family." <laughs> you know, he is—he uh, had six siblings, and and so, um, you know, people um, people are afraid, and and often the issue is that that these things should be discussed with your parents um, at a point where they really can offer some direction and offer some of their own feelings, even if certain things appear you know, to their children as perhaps unfair, in other words, perceive that they're favoring one child or another, they also try to avoid that discussion. So what often happens is that the discussion is never held and it becomes something which is just negotiated by the adult um, children um, in a little bit of a vacuum because you don't really know what your parents wanted and you're taking kind of a guess. Um and um one of the problems especially is if you have um you know strong-minded um siblings is that um you know people think they're right, you know, and there's no way that to really challenge each other except to try to really talk through and understand each other from a um managerial style. You know, there are different ways of characterizing, I mean most recently, I had a discussion with someone who talked about um, styles of either being, you know, you're as a, as a manager, you're a, you're a director, or you're a presenter, or you're a mediator, or a strategist. Yeah. I'm basically, um, I am basically a mediator slash strategist. It can be di- directorial. I can be, and I will be directorial, but it's difficult when you deal with brothers who are directors. Many times, it comes down to um, people's limitations in their, in their skills or their emotions or their, um, personalities. Um, so it's not something you can really fix. Um, and for your parents, you know, there were limits and sometimes there were just cultural limits that people just did not talk about these things. They put together a will and they never discussed it with people. People discovered, you know, at the reading of the will, what their intentions were, um, and And it was like that now it's your problem <laughs> you know and 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 basically, um parents were largely conflict avoidance, you know they really they they just wanted their kids to get along um but you know there often there are there aren't the tools to do that and the 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 adult kids really you really have to find the tools and in many cases it actually doesn't work and I've just of many families in which, when the parents both finally pass, the family does not really survive in in a in the way that the parents had hoped. You know, you right. just break apart. You, know, you break up the estate, and then you know your relationships are minimal, and and uh, you know these things are just unresolved for many years, and and often never really resolved. But it takes a lot of work, and it takes a lot. What I've discovered is, you know, when, in putting together. This you know this so-called family meeting is that holy cow I've I've probably had about twenty-five or thirty family meetings. It's not something you just have a meeting, you know, call a meeting and fix this. It's like no, this is something that gets um, addressed and and solved or not solved or managed incrementally over years, but. You know you have to have a commitment to do it. When is my family equipped to deal with this, and when do we need an intervention or when where do we need help? Because we can't do this alone. we can't solve this alone and that's tough because we're used to thinking we can't solve it alone and what's, if we can, what's the matter with us? Conventionally, the person who who gets more involved is the adult daughters, you know, and yeah. the adult sons kind of um, um, delegate it until it gets to a certain point where all of a sudden the adult son wakes up and decides that he, wait a minute, he wants to be involved, especially involved in, you know, whether it's dividing of assets or whether it's something more materially involved. And then, you know, the the daughter's like, well, wait a minute, where have you been for the past, you know, 10 years? What happens is that the others then insert themselves, like, wait a minute, I wanna be involved in this. This is my mother. And then the the one who is, has selected themselves as the primary caregiver feels um, a underappreciated and and lashes back um, feels that um, uh, he or she is losing control and gets resentful and defensive. I've basically um, been involved in trying to um, help. Redefine the caregiving relationships and and uh, redirect my younger brother to understand that um, first of all, um, in serving my mother, what she wanted most is, is to see all of us, you know, secure and safe and, and successful. This all of us grew up with this mother, and all of us have these relationships and all of us feel have strong feelings about our connection to her. But then when he moved back home uh and he took really a gatekeeper role, you know, that this was like he was there almost as her you know, her spouse. And so, um, you know, we would have to you know almost call ahead to him and say, is it okay to come over? Because he felt that it was an intrusion on his privacy. And it's like, wait a minute, you're there by her good graces, you know, but now you're acting as if you're her caregiver slash um guardian and and now you know now we have to go through you to get to our mother. The most dramatic incident was um when um we're about to go and 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 meet with a lawyer and um you know i I mentioned this to my brothers and Dan is there and and i can since he's stalling um and I didn't like what what's the problem sat down and pulled out um, another will that he had done, basically changing the will that I had done for mom, which essentially um, had split up the assets of the estate equally four ways. um, And this new will basically gave him a majority of the assets, the estate. I essentially had to confront it. You know, I I forced a showdown with the lawyer and I said, you're coming to the lawyer's office and we're going to have this, you know, uh, discussion in front of mom and and the attorney. Um, And basically we had to, we rewrote the will. You know, when the lawyer um, asked her, Mrs. Roel, how do you want to um, uh, divide your assets to your sons? You know, she did, you know, look at him and say four ways so but she was really you know another couple of years and she could not have been able to make that decision
0: welcome back to boom goddess podcast with B.B. Peters Jennifer Davis Page and myself Dr. Andrea Gould and we've just had quite a little journey um, discussions in every direction about the caring for aging parents
2: and it seems to me that uh, the more siblings that are involved, the
7: more complicated it gets, right? That's if they're not on the same page. You know, some, with my sister and I and my brother, we really are on the same page. We're, we don't have any 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 bad feelings amongst each other. We all love each other. And my brother knows that my sister and I are taking great care of my mother. So I'm not quite sure it's how many children there are. It just depends on how many want to participate.
0: And it's so interesting in speaking to Ron in in New York, our friend Ron Roel, talking about his caring for f- with four men caring for a 90 year old woman and the kinds of conflicts that can occur it's so interesting in many cases where if there's a sibling who doesn't have a family and doesn't have a job how they might select themselves to be the caregiver and What does that do to the rest of the family and to the siblings who are employed or are involved in family? And sharing that feeling, both of responsibility, but many people describe it as a joyous burden, that even though it's a responsibility and even though it's heavy, a lot of people at the last minute, many of us want to step up and be there. And I think that leads us really toward... What are we going to do? We're the next generation that has to make these decisions. Is it going to be about speaking to our children about taking care of us? Or might there be some other ways that we will invent as the inventing generation to make sure that we are cared for in our older age?
7: I have made a decision that I'm going to pre-plan my final my funeral not my final days but my funeral and my husband's funeral we're we're gonna prepay and give our children a really great roadmap as to you go here when this happens you can call this number and I want you and this is we're gonna give you a roadmap as to what to do because the grief is 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 terrible so to have to think through the process Uh, I don't want it. I don't want them to have to grieve and think through the process So I'm going to give them a roadmap so they can follow it Um, My friend said when she her mother wrote her that letter telling her what she wanted her to do And what her wishes were it was the greatest gift she could have given and it really touched my heart And I'm going to do the same thing for my children
0: And I think that there are some of us who may not have children or may not have children in that kind of a picture so in future podcasts we're going to discuss what our plans might be those of us who might not have family that will follow us up we need to think about how it is we want to live our final
2: years so here's two more episodes on this topic we look forward to that one
7: we welcome your suggestions please visit our website at boomgoddessradio.com
2: reach out to us. Use the Contact Us tab. Let us know what you think and what kind of topics you'd like to hear.
0: Thank you for tuning in today. This is Dr. Andrea, Jennifer, and Bibi, your Boom Goddesses, signing off. Each voice of wisdom shares ripples out into our universe and inspires so many others. Namaste. For technical reasons, portions of this program have been pre-recorded.